Dotnet Rocks episode 692 with guest Emily Lewis. Recorded live Tuesday, August 23rd, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. Hey man, we have some news. Yes, we do. Yeah, a lot of news. First of all, the uh, the show that we did on space. Yeah. People loved it. In fact, we got more comments about that than we did about really cool .NET topics. <laughs> so... And I, I think some of the comments were really, we didn't do enough. I think we have to revisit it. Yeah, I think we will. So uh, stay tuned for that. Also, um, hey, I'm married. Yeah, congratulations, my friend. And you married us. Well, I didn't marry you. I, I officiated the ceremony. So how it went was uh, Kelly, my, my wife, and I had a housewarming party, <coughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge, where we invited people to our new home for a party. And at the housewarming party, we said... You know, Richard here is uh, wants to say something, and you said, uh, Carl and Kelly have asked me here to marry them. So if you're not here, tough. <laughs> <laughs> it was a quick and simple ceremony, and you completely blindsided most of your family. Yeah, it was great. And friends. Yeah. It was cool. Also, uh, we have the birth of a Franklin Brothers album here. Uh, congratulations, my friend. The music is awesome. Thank you. Uh, Jay and I, my brother Jay and I, have been working on it for 10 years, and as you know, I've probably talked about it a little bit on the show but there it is it's called lifeboat to nowhere and you can listen to it on a free track online and get all the links to amazon and itunes and all that if you go to franklinbros.com franklinbros.com awesome so check it out hey let's do better know a framework <laughs> All right, what do you got? And, oh, man, I can't wait for the next Geek Out show because we were just talking before the, we started recording about the stuff that we're going to – man, things are happening Amazing in life things. that will blow your mind. So stay tuned for that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about System.Lazy. What? System.Lazy of T. Ah. It's been there since .NET 3.5. It implements lazy loading, the lazy pattern. You got to like it pass in an object and it uses and you use an instance to defer the creation of a large or resource intensive object or the execution of a resource intensive task um so you know the really good for our new multi-threaded reality mm-hmm. lazy of t system dot lazy know it don't it love it know it love it speaking of lazy how's your mother nice thanks for that that's fair I just saw my mom, actually. I made her a cup of tea. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment from a show 689, which is Sean Walker on .NET Nuke 6. This is Marcus Hammerberg, who said, Hi, loving the show. I haven't missed a show in a 100-episode streak now. Wow. Maybe I am a .NET geek after all. Having twins that I watch over, I got drawn away from the show early on this time. I'll get the rest later. However, I have a thought on the VB.NET versus C Sharp discussion. Oh, man, he's listening to some old shows. Well, no, because remember, this came up because uh, .NET Nuke migrated over to C Sharp from VB.NET. Oh, right. Okay. And so we had, we, yeah, I know it's an old conversation, but it's yeah. interesting to bring it up again because really people 
people have stopped talking about. And this is what Marcus is on about. The question is, where is this going with Microsoft's different languages? Hmm. He thinks that VB.net is diminishing in important usage, but it's just a hunch. It would be interesting to hear more about this in general. Great throw. Keep it up. It all depends on who you are. Yeah. If you're a Fortune 500 company that's invested millions of dollars and millions of lines of code in your VBNet staff and your VBNet products, it's pretty damn important to you. So that's, that's, that's all there is. You know, it all depends on if you, you're invested in it. It's not going away. It's certainly not going away, but I guess there is an argument about is it important? Because it used to be, sure. and this debate was really important for a while. There. Well, it was really only important to people who were learning .NET. Should, right. What should I learn? You know. But I mean, therein lies the question, Carl. If you were brand new to .NET, what would you? What language would you learn? Definitely C sharp. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting truth. As you and I both VB guys from way back. And uh, I think you'd have to learn C sharp. So what it's just because there's more code in C sharp out there, and there's yep. more code being done in C sharp, mm-hmm. and there's more C based languages around. So your skills transfer to other languages. That's that's all there is to it. I mean, that's if you're just fell off the turnip truck and want to start programming. That's what that's all about. Programming .net. But you know, if you've got VB stuff to maintain and you want to bring it forward, VB net's a good choice. Got to agree. Yeah. That's why people aren't talking about it anymore. Right. Because <laughs> we already figured that one out. It's done. So thanks, Marcus. A mug is on its way to you. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas for a show, want to give us some additional insight or direction to look in, we'd love to hear from you. Write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. And well, Richard, I'm really excited because Emily Lewis is here. And I am almost embarrassed to say this is the first show that we were doing you know, a real hour-long show with a guest on Skype. Yeah. So welcome, Emily. Wow, I'm honored. <laughs> yeah, now I hope it doesn't start sounding like this. Because <laughs> that's been the bane of us, you know, with, with that's happened. But but before we start talking to Emily, let me introduce her. Uh, Emily's a freelance web designer. Her website's emilylewisdesign.com. Uh, she is of the standardista variety, which means she gets geeky about things like semantic markup and CSS, usability and accessibility. As part of her ongoing quest to spread the good word about standards, she writes about web design on her blog, a ablognotlimited.com, and is the author of microformatsmadesimple.com, and a contributing author for the forthcoming HTML5 cookbook from O'Reilly.com. She is also a guest writer for ScriptJunkie.net magazine and Mix Online. Welcome, Emily Lewis. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks for being here. And uh, standardista, that's a great word. Yeah, it gets a bad rap sometimes, though, because uh, it sometimes can be associated with sort of a pedantic way of approaching web design, mm-hmm. which uh, I try not to be. I try and be flexible, but still embracing web standards. Well, these days, it's so easy to embrace web standards because... It it really yeah. is. It, it You know, browsers are now supporting it. Uh, Google encourages it. And um, it's really just a matter of, um, you know, in our field, it's often self-taught and it's really just reaching out to people who are teaching themselves and making sure they have the right information, um, you know, making sure that they have access to um, real world information about web standards and best practices. Right. 
And so do you find that a lot of uh, HTML, let's just say HTML developers, if you want to call them that, or HTML people, uh, are using tools that uh, apply the standards or, or don't apply the standards? Or when is it mostly the ones that are churning it out by hand that have the problem? Uh, you know, I, I honestly, I've stopped, I guess it's been probably eight years since I've regularly asked, you know, do you use a WYSIWYG or do you hand code? Um, so I don't really know if the, the stuff that I see these days or the people that I'm meeting, what they're using for their tools, but I think it's more about a way they approach their work. Um, you know, if you take the time to use a tool correctly in the sense that you know what it can do for you and you know that sometimes it does more than you want it to do. For example, if you're using something like Dreamweaver and you choose not to use the code view, but the design view, it's going to be generating markup for you that maybe not be uh, standards-based or in your best interest. But if you know how to use the tool correctly, you can adjust for that. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's really about an, a mindset. Like, are you going to support standards from the beginning of your work um, and use tools accordingly? And then there's the problem we all have where... You use a great tool and it looks good on the screen and then you save it and you look at the what it generates and it's like one long run-on sentence. Yeah, and that's always painful. Um, and that's, that's why I tend to – I'm not an early adopter when it comes to uh, new text editors and stuff. I find ones that I like and I, I stay true to them because they do what I need. Yeah. No surprises. <laughs> yeah, the one that comes to mind is saving a Word document as an HTML file. Ugh. Just say have, no. <laughs> don't do don't it. Don't do it. I have clients that still do that thinking they're helping me yeah, <laughs> by right. send, sending me the HTML. They're like, oh, the HTML's just done. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that's ugly. Yeah, and you didn't even say front page once. Right. Oh, that's, oh, you just brought back horrible that nightmares. Well, that's the, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. If you really want to fix things, just stop using these horrible tools. <laughs> it's been, it's, a, it's really tough though to get a good WYSIWYG HTML editor because most of the time, and I've said this before, you're, you know, like a table editor, for example. You, when you try to edit a table, yeah, try to select the row, the column, the, the cell. Uh, there's so many different ways to, slice up that data that you hold your icon, you hold your mouse icon or up in the top left-hand corner and moving around one pixel and the, you know, the cursor is changing because you can do different things at a pixel level. It's just very difficult to do unless you zoom in really far and have a kind of a, um, a you know, a bigger graphical view and then you lose the WYSIWYGness. So what's the point? Yeah. It's been a while for me since I've worked in WYSIWYG view, but uh, speaking of tables, when I do have to write tables for data, um, I always let the WYSIWYG build the structure of it for me first, and then I'll go in and tweak hand coding. Because for right. me, that's always been my hardest stuff to write in terms of HTML, remembering the proper structure for a table to contain right. data, especially like you said, there's so many different ways of configuring columns and uh, rows and such. And it's funny that dance between code view and uh and you know WYSIWYG view or projected view mm -hmm. back and forth and back and forth yeah i mm -hmm. just i i always use the WYSIWYG editor just to look at what i've done in the code view i'm always working in the code view yeah i'm pretty excited about um and this is this is not a plug. It's a genuine thing. I've I've been using just a strict text editor for years and years and years because I I liked I like CodeView. It's where I live, so it's comfortable for me. But uh, Dreamweaver CS55 came out, and um, it offers a really nice live view functionality that's a bit different than like the split 
code design view. It's you have your code and then it gives you a live view of the browser right next to it. But mm. even better, it gives you the option to change resolutions so you can test like perhaps different resolutions that you might get with a smartphone or an iPad or whatever. Nice. And so Dreamweaver is for me like Photoshop. It's got far more than I'm ever going to use and mm. I <laughs> I barely touch on its functionality, but that alone has got me working in it again. It tops um, out at like a grand, doesn't it? Yeah, well fortunately um I'm a uh I'm a co-manager for an Adobe user group, so uh -huh. I get access to that software nice, for free. Nice, nice. The other thing, uh, maybe this is not your particular area of specialty. Stop me if I'm going off the funny direction. I've been looking at this H some of the HTML5 and CSS3 stuff around scaling controls, scaling text boxes and so forth. So that as you change the size of a screen, font shift correctly and uh, uh, what might be a dro drop down becomes something smaller. Just It seems fascinating to me that we could actually build a page that would work equally well in a, you know, 1280 by 768 screen down to one of the, you know, an, an iPhone or a WinPhone 7. Mm -hmm. This seems to me to be one of the biggest trends happening in the web design field. Um, there, and I think you and I are thinking the same thing. It's what they're referring to um, as responsive web design or adaptive web design, where you're building uh, not for a particular view, but for device independence. So that, yeah, whatever device you're looking at a website or an application on, it's going to scale appropriately. It's going to still be as functional um, and it's, it's fascinating because it's what everyone seems to be talking about and there are books coming out about it and everyone's still trying to not only figure out the technical issues of achieving that goal, but just thinking differently about how you approach web design, um, to start with. Cause it's not just a matter of achieving it. You ha in order to achieve it, you have to design differently from the beginning. Well, and, and an important point of that is that utilization is different. You're typically in a different place when you're on your desktop machine versus, you know, on the street on your phone. Exactly. And that's an even different um, area than responsive web design, as, at least as far as I understand responsive web design. It's mostly focused on uh, modifying the front end uh, from a, almost like a CSS-based perspective, mm -hmm. uh, using things like web, uh, media queries and some JavaScript so that things can scale down. But then there's also developing specifically for those different environments. You know, like you're saying, if you are, let's say you're not on your desktop, but in a, in a mobile environment, the sort of information that you want when you're on a website could likely be very different than the kind of information you're seeking on a desktop. And so you want to inundate a mobile user with all of the content on your site, or do you focus it on the sort of information like maps and location and, uh, you know, times and phone numbers that are more relevant in a mobile situation? And that's a whole other area of sort of device independent design. Yeah, but I think the most compelling part about that is this idea of recognizing, yeah, with that form factor, you must be mobile. I'm going to make these, hide these things because you're just mm -hmm. not going to be able to look at them anyway mm -hmm. and focus on the pieces that matter to you. Mm -hmm. It's pretty exciting. I don't think we've ever really thought about websites and applications in this fashion before. Well, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we now are carrying hardware around in our pockets that can oh. render complex web pages. Yeah, exactly. And we have increasing access to public Wi-Fi and good um uh, broadband access. Yeah, there's enough bandwidth. <laughs> What's that? That's an old Esther Dyson line. It was easier to put Wi-Fi everywhere than it was to create a good offline client. Well, is Wi-Fi <laughs> really everywhere though? I no. mean, it's re it really isn't. You go to anywhere in Europe, and it is everywhere. And in America, it still isn't. 
I don't. Well, think so. it's everywhere in Europe, but you have to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's better than it not being available. I mean, there, what, there was a, an experiment. I guess the city of Philadelphia was going to wire itself so that Wi-Fi would be available everywhere. Do you remember this? Yeah, San, San Francisco talked about it as well. Did they do it? Did Philly ever do it? And then nobody's ever done it. And I think part of the reason was the all-you-could-eat 3G packages from the carriers. Yeah, it mm. just, why bother? Yeah. Well, exactly. When you can, uh, interesting that those all-you-can-eat packages are now going away. Hmm. Maybe the, you know, whole city Wi-Fi will come back. It's pretty interesting. Well, I have, I have my Wi-Fi on my phone turned on, so I take advantage of it where, where I can, but it, but it's never usually available for free. Right. Yeah. Well, what's for free anyway? This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. Do you ever wonder if there's a shortcut to the Windows Phone 7 marketplace, a way to get your apps there faster? In fact, there is a shortcut. It's called RAD Controls for Windows Phone. The suite from Telerik offers functionality such as animations, transitions, gauges, and much more that you don't need to write yourself. Another asset of the suite is the fastest list box control available anywhere. And being one of the most widely used controls in Windows Phone 7 applications, it's quite a serious advantage. If you care what other developers have achieved with RAD controls, you can check out their showcase section. More than 50 selected apps. Some of them, such as My Stocks and Mood Swing, are among the top-selling apps in their categories. If you haven't played with Telerik's RAD controls for Windows Phone yet, download a free trial at www.telerik.com slash phone DNR. Emily, what's a microformat? Um, microformats, they're um, data patterns that you use for writing HTML um, that describe the content you're marking up. So, for example, if you have, you know, almost almost every website out there has um, contact information yeah. uh, for the site or the site owner or the company or whatever somewhere on that. And so there's a microformat called HCARD. And what it is, it's a, a pattern of uh, marking up that contact information on your website in a way that describes that not only is it contact information, but the different elements of that contact information. So, so it's analogous to a common commonly used XML schema. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Except uh, microformats are sort of intended to be uh, a little more easy for people to pick up. They right. rely entirely upon HTML and um, they utilize uh, most often the class attribute in HTML that a lot of people are mm -hmm. already familiar with using for CSS styling purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, but with microformats, they're used to provide... Um, uh, structure to the data to give the the content meaning. Now, do these things have legs standard wise? Are people utilizing them uh, correctly? Is everybody is there a war for standardization? Um, I I personally perceive there there is a struggle for standardization. <laughs> I don't I don't want to say a war because a I do know, perhaps. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very geek. It's 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 very it's a geek war. You know, my semantic vocabulary is better than yours. Because you know, everybody wants to own that. Exactly, and and we've got microformats, which which I sort of think of as the everyman's structured data format or vocabulary, um, because it's just so easy to start using. Um, but it's also uh, narrow in the sense that it applies to the most common web content, and then we have. 
RDFA, on the other hand, which attempts to do the same thing to describe content, but RDFA is just infinitely extensible to any vocabulary you want to create. It's also more complicated to pick up than microformats simply because microformats is it resides in HTML and it only requires the use of the class attribute and some values, whereas RDFA requires a little bit higher level of um, uh, markup of information that you're adding to markup and understanding of the schemas and how they work. And so those two uh, factions <laughs> mm. for years, I've been sitting, you know, as a person who just, I'm a practitioner, I build microformats into my work and I'm watching all the people who invented, you know, RDFA and who believe in microformats. And it's all like, Oh, this is better than yours. And it's really not, it, they can go hand in hand. Um, but recently with HTML5, we also have microdata. Now, microdata is part of the HTML5 specification, and it attempts to do the exact same thing that microformats and RDFA do, which is describe web content. Um, and it does it in a way that, like RDFA, is extensible to lots of different kinds of content, but like microformats, is a little bit uh, simpler than RDFA, and so therefore they're hoping easier to adopt. Now, amongst all three of those now, the only one that actually um, is a standard or will be a standard is microdata because it's part of the HTML5 specification. Um, RDFA uh, is a standard that the W3C has been working on. Um, and then microformats is sort of like a grassroots effort. And all of them have different amounts of adoption. And everyone likes to say one is better than the other, but the reality is, is different types of content and site authors use different ways of marking up their data based on the kind of data that they have. Um, and you, I think I mentioned, you can use microformats, RDFA, and even microdata, all three together. I mean, your markup will just be a big old hot mess of information, mm -hmm. but they can reside happily together. Um, and then to add fuel to this sort of ongoing struggle of, you know, which way is best um, so that so that people like me aren't having to write three different ways of structuring our data because uh, that's not fun. Right. And it sort of, you know, goes against the idea of keeping our pages lean and uh, semantic when you just overload it with a bunch of stuff. But uh, Bing, Yahoo and Google about I think it's almost been two months. They recently announced support for something called schema.org. Mm -hmm. And this is in, um, it's like an official uh, set of schemas or vocabularies that these three search engines are going to support and use to improve um, most typically, probably not search results in terms of your ranking, but more likely to improve the display of search results to their users. Um, so that users get the most relevant information when they search, not necessarily in terms of rank, but in terms of the literal information that shows up in the snippets on the page. Um, and so they're supporting schema.org now, and that's based um, on microdata, the HTML5 microdata that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. So that to me tells me that that's the direction that I'm interested uh, in doing more work with to see, you know, if you have all three search engines supporting one, um, one quote unquote standard 
for yeah, that's like ninety percent of search just said we're going to go this way. Right. Exactly. I mean, how can you ignore that? I mean, like I said, I'm a practitioner. My clients, that's what they care about. It yeah. doesn't matter that I wrote a book about microformats and I like them. Right. <laughs> it's it's about what my clients and projects need. Yeah. So, but it remains to be seen. Schema is still really new. Um, and microformats community and RDFA have almost sort of had a fire lit under them with this latest announcement. They're like, oh, we're going to make ours better and we're going to prove that we're better. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good thing. Competition spurs, you know, some great things. You've been a CSS person for, for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Are you um are you the kind of artistic CSS person or the kind of uh, uh, that looks good? I'll take that one and I'll take that one kind of CSS person. Um, I guess artistic. Although I never would have thought of myself that way. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I think of myself as a crafts person when it comes to that stuff. Yeah. What what kind of tools do you use for, or do you just roll it by hand? Yeah, I roll it by hand. Hmm. Um, I'm not necessarily opposed to frameworks, um, or libraries, you know, it's really depends on the project Hmm. and, um, my time for me, because I've been writing CSS for so long, I'm just, you know, I'm rather quick at it and I understand what I need to do to achieve presentational goals. And when I've tried to embrace a new framework, the learning curve is such that as a freelancer, I just don't really have the time right now. Um, But, you know, and, you know, some of the frameworks like the, is it the less and the SAS that have come out that, you know, run on, um, I think one runs on Ruby and it allows you to use variables in CSS. Mm -hmm. I think that has some great potential, but again, it would have to, you know, the I'd have to be running something on Ruby and I, I don't even know how to begin with that. So, hmm. But it, it's interesting to talk to someone who's focused on web de- development and web design without being a quote unquote developer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's almost, you know, as developers, we tend to fall back into the code as a crutch rather than use and learn more about the standards that are out there that could do the same things. Well, and you know, when I, not to suggest that this is how everyone is, but when I started, you know, that's, um, you know, that was my, that's what I relied on, you know, the crutch. It's just at some point, I, I think I just encountered so many problems using that crutch. And then I finally had to figure out why those problems were happening. Right. And it forced me to have to go into the code view. It forced me to have to understand how browsers were reading what I was writing so that I could then troubleshoot and get around it. And then once I started doing that, I just found it to be easier to work in that mindset from the beginning. Yes, I know exactly what you're saying. But that's that's me. I think everyone has different styles. No, I'm I've I've been using TextPad for all of my HTML stuff for the longest time. I mean, I kind of like Visual Studio as well, but I'm in the text editor of Visual mm-hmm. Studio, not the the WYSIWYG for Windows Forms or anything. Um, you know, IntelliSense is kind of a nice feature, no matter what text editor you're using. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it's nice to have auto completion of tags and recognition when you get a tag correct and when you don't. Like, that yeah, saves a lot things. of time. Yeah. Those definitely improve. All of those things uh, definitely count or add up over time to let you save those little, you know, efficiencies for projects. Yeah. They're huge. 
So I'm, I'm still wrestling with the microformat idea. You, like you say, we mark up contact information in such a way that it's easy to identify. Look, who's identifying it? What are people going to do with that? Ah, well, people aren't going to do all that much with it because people can see that content on a screen. And, right. you know, we recognize that's contact information or that's an event or that's a book review. And that's the rating for the book review and the title of the book. Mm-hmm. We can recognize all the elements. But machines, uh, machines like browsers and search engines, um, they don't uh, discern that kind of content as being any different than the surrounding content. You know, mm-hmm. it, it can see what an image is versus some text, but um, it's not going to see a contact address and necessarily know that that's an address, that's the street, that's the city, that's the phone number, and so forth. And so by marking up that data, you know, with microformats, um, you're get, then giving machines uh, readable data that they can then do something with that information. So in the case of like um, for contact information and the H card microformat, if I mark that up um, on my on a site on a with my contact information with a, the H card microformat, and then I can run um, different parsing tools against it. And it, what it'll do is it'll extract that contact information from my website transform it into a VCF file that I can then add to my address book. Okay. You know, what it reminds me of is the, like in HTML, you have this address tag that nobody even ever uses, but it's supported by all the browsers. But if you have address, you know, as a tag and slash address in between that, you've got, you know, the name of a, of your contact information, that kind of stuff. I don't know what tools pick that up. But that's an example of a microformat, and that's been around in HTML for a while. Yeah, actually, this was something I learned when I got into microformats, that address element you're referring to. It's actually, according to the specification, not for addresses as you and I are thinking of them in terms of like a mailing address. Mm. It's actually the address in terms of who is the document author. Okay. So if it was, and that's why a lot of people don't use it because it was, hmm. it makes sense. You read it address. That's the street address, yeah. right? No, there's some sort of specification language from the W3C that says it's supposed to be the document author, hmm. uh, which could be different than the company address. Sure. And if thing. you have more than one address, there you right. go. You know, so it's funny, but that's how, you know, this this crazy language of HTML is for me. And everyone thinks it's the, you know, it, it is. It's the simplest language, I think, that you can pick up to get your feet wet and understanding how to build things that work on the web. Um, but it has so many of these crazy nuances that, about the actual semantic meaning of different elements. That's exactly the thing that I'm hesitant about microformats with because, you know, XML is very specific in terms of here's the URI to the schema definition for this schema that I'm going to use for this data. And this data uses that schema and here's the data, you mm-hmm. know, but it, but it, it, it's not approachable, especially, you know, in a hand rolled, uh, web page, mm-hmm. unless you have tools that are helping you in there. And, you know, the problem, of course, is that everybody's got their own spin on what it means. Right. So, well, that's the one thing with microformats is that they do have, they don't call them schemas. Um, 
but it's a, like a profile that defines all of the values for the specific types of data that can be um, included in, in each different microformat, you know, mm-hmm. the kind of data that would be with contact information versus with events and so forth. Um, and those profiles are defined um, and you can uh, point to that URI on the web so that that can be what the parser recognizes. It just doesn't have all that goo in the HTML document. Correct. Yeah. Um, and you don't necessarily have to reference the profile URI because the language of the pattern, uh, the, the class values that you use to structure your data, those are the ones that the people who write the tools that read microformats have to use the same ones. Um, so, I mean, there's some standardization in terms of the, the authors who publish microformats and then the people who create applications that read microformats. Um, so, so some of these microformats might be, uh, you mentioned one, uh, I've looked up a couple since we've been talking like H calendar and H card. What's H card? H calendar. I can pretty much discern what that is, but what's H card? H card is the one for contact information. Okay. H card is, is based off of the V card format, which is an international mm. standard for marking up contact information Yeah. or not marking up, but defining it. Yep. Um, and, uh, H calendar is based off of I calendar. So, um, those are are the two most, I'd say the most popular in terms of publishing, uh, because those are, those are real, that's really, really common web content. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Hey, you know, those, those have been in use for a long, long time. So, yeah, I mean, and, and even, um, you know, before the announcement about schema.org came out, you know, Google and Yahoo had been supporting microformats uh, for a long time. Um, in fact, Google came out, I think it was about two years ago, with their Rich Snippets initiative, which was um, a way of, of displaying um, uh, their rich their snippets. You know, when you do a search, the list of information that shows up and it has like a little snippet of information under the link. Mm-hmm. So it was a way of um, making snippets stand out for content that had been marked up with microformats. So like Yelp, they um, they added the HReview microformat to all of their reviews. And then Google then would take the information from the microformat, that machine-readable data. Mm. And if if a search result came up, then in the snippets, it would show the number of stars that review had in terms of ratings, how many reviews were associated with that link. Mm. Perhaps if the review is for a product that has a price, what the price is. Um, and so a little bit more contextual information for their searchers um, based on people using microformats. Hmm. It, like, it sounds like it could give you an SEO advantage to your site to use microformats Oh, hell yeah. Well. Yeah, I mean, I don't. It, I don't think it's going to change your ranking, but it will change how your, you know, your snip, your snippet shows up differently than all the other ones around it. Right. right. Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output. Give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. 
I'm up on schema.org and I'm looking through some of the formats and stuff. And they, I guess they're, they have a sort of inheritance hierarchy. Do mm-hmm. they? Cause, cause I looked at, I clicked on recipe and recipe derives from creative work, which, de- which derives from get this thing. <laughs> okay, we're getting a little fundamental in the object. Yeah, I here. like it. Thing. It's a thing. Not, you know, we call it object in, in programming and they call it a thing. So a thing <laughs> has text, URL. Uh, uh, like a description, image, a name, and a URL, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Creative work has stuff like um, about, author, editor, genre, keywords, that kind of stuff. And recipe has cook time, cooking method, ingredients, nutrition. So there's this whole dictionary and of uh, – Define data formats. This, but this reminds me of XML schemas from the old days. Well, yeah, but mm-hmm. you know the thing that the thing that I'm struggling with here is everybody knows that XML schemas are just for a very rare breed of geek that that digests and understand them. Don XML is a freak of nature. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like without tools, I can't use XML. I read it and I look at it. And yeah, that's nice, but I don't have these URIs at the tip of my fingers. You know, sure. nobody does. Unless you're Don Demsack. So, so this is sort of a, 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 um, a, an attempt to simplify what XML schemas have been trying to do all along, I suppose. You know, I don't know if that was the main goal, but I mean, it's certainly from that, from my perspective, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's, it's all for that goal of making this machine readable data that we can have this great, huge semantic web of information. Mm. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are, aren't happy about schema.org because it wasn't developed in an open web fashion. Right. It seems uh, sort of uh, ISTA-ish. <laughs> yeah. So, but, you know, I, I'm not, um, you know, I can't say that that discourages me from it. I think if it, no, if it when, reaches... When this- Google, Microsoft, and Yahoo agree on something, that's a pretty exactly. good thing. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And it's and it's extensible. So it meets the needs of people who have been complaining what microformats lacked for a long time. Uh, but it still remains simple, which was the complaint about RDFA or, you know, not complaint, but what you hear most about people, you know, not happy with it mm-hmm. or why it yeah. wasn't suitable for their projects. Um, you know, so and like you said, with the big three search engines supporting it, you can't ignore it. And um, it is I don't know. I really do think this is the direction that things are going. This this direction of structured data, especially when it's simple like this, people are going to be able to adopt it, not just want to adopt it because they have a geek interest, but they're going to want to adopt it because the big three or uh, search engines are supporting it. And, you know, it's really not that complicated to implement. So it's easy. It's not particularly painful and it gives you significant advantage. Why wouldn't everybody do this? Yeah, well, that's what I think is going to happen in the next couple of years, you know, as people see the value of structured data um, mm-hmm. and in doing it in, in HTML, in, you know, you're giving the power to, um, you know, people like me, the the practitioners who are just building out the HTML. I don't need to have any, um, you know, extensive knowledge beyond my HTML knowledge and being able to reference something like microformats.org. Uh, they have a wiki where they've defined everything very similarly to how schema defines things. But schema.org doesn't have a wiki, I noticed. No, well, I'm, you know, that wouldn't surprise me because it's not really open web. Yeah. You know, it's not sort of a community collaboration. This is what the th- 
the three right. guys, the three big guys decided they wanted. So right. <laughs> I don't know if they want the community to contribute. Have you made contributions um, or suggestions? Is there a way to do that? Is there a feedback loop? Uh, with schema, I'm not uh, aware of one, but I have not spent as much time with schema as I'd like. Um, yeah. But with microformats, yes. Um, the wiki, uh, it's at microformats.org forward slash wiki. Um, anyone can contribute, not only um, uh, contribute to questions, um, get answers to questions, but you can add examples. You can add our uh, links to articles that you've written something about microformats or, you know, something about structured data. Um, but yeah, the microformats, they also have, um, I think it's an IRC channel where mm. people can talk. And um, so, yeah, it's a, Pretty open community. All right. I just learned a new acronym. What's that? Posh. <laughs> Plain old semantic HTML. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Plain and old. <laughs> Plain old semantic HTML. That's great. It's <laughs> funny. Yeah. I, uh, I, I've given a number of presentations, and that's always my favorite couple of slides. <laughs> yeah. That's good. I imagine that's a new, although it's been around since April 2007, apparently. Yeah, and it's really only, I mean, not a lot of people use it. Uh, I think people in the microformats community do. Um, People like me who are really into semantics uh, do. But Mm. yeah, it's, it's, it just amuses me because just, you know, if we can come up with an acronym, that's what we geeks will do. Absolutely. (laughs) Because it's, uh, it's less synapses that have to fire to get the understanding, (laughs) right? Any way to get to it sooner. That's it. So, Emily, <laughs> what are you working on next? Um, well, you know, uh, as you mentioned when you introduced me, I'm finishing up the final edits of the HTML5 cookbook coming out from O'Reilly. So excited about that. Hopefully it'll be out this fall, if all goes well, with the other authors that are involved. And it's a pretty broad topic. What does a cookbook look like? Um, well, a cookbook format for O'Reilly is they really break um, uh, each... Uh, chapter into different recipes and they're basically like uh, I want to be able to do X and then the recipe is the solution for how to do X and it's so there isn't a whole lot of background and theory it's very practically focused um, and sort of task based and at least the HTML5 cookbook uh, from what I've seen of the outline and everything because I'm just a contributing author, um, we have uh, pretty much covering the full spectrum of what the specification includes. So we've got all the stuff that I talk about that has to do with sort of front-end semantics and the, nice. the new elements that we have and some of the change definitions. And, um, and then we also have, you know, focus on native media. And then we've got a heavy focus with all of the different APIs and stuff that you can do with JavaScript and HTML5. So it's really broad. It's going to be a thick one, I think. Oh, that sounds great. Well, this is really interesting stuff. And, you know, and thanks for enlightening us. Um, I imagine that there's a lot of listeners out there who never even thought about microformats and uh, are still plotting away using long XML schemas and crazy things like that. So this is a breath of fresh air, I'm sure. Great. I'm glad to have enlightened you guys. <laughs> the website is emilylewisdesign.com. Emily, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And before we go, uh, I'm going to play you a song off of the new Franklin Brothers album, Lifeboat to Nowhere, which you can get at franklinbros.com.
Shameless plug. All right, this is I've Been to the Waters.
Sometimes I can't tell if I'm 